Well, now as we turn our attention to God's word, let us pause for a word of prayer. Lord, as the rain falls from heaven and does not return there without accomplishing its purpose, so let your word fall on us this morning and accomplish in us your word's purpose. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is Psalm 19. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the New Testament lesson comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, I received a theologically weighty email from a woman who was preparing to lead her book club discussion 
on a book called The Soul of an Octopus by Cy Montgomery. This New York Times bestseller explores the remarkable intelligence of that bizarre sea creature, detailing how octopi can solve complex problems and form emotional connections with humans. Montgomery writes of befriending octopi with various personalities like gentle Athena, assertive Octavia, curious Callie, and joyful Karma. Apparently, the, b- the book had provoked some theological questions among her book group, and so her email ended with a series of questions. She wrote, Do animals go to heaven? Do animals have souls? What is a soul? Are there religions that accept that our animals go to heaven and will be there for us? Will we recognize them as the animals we have on earth? Each question could swallow up a book club discussion in its own right. But all of them, it seems to me, boil down to the same fundamental question, and that is this. What is the ultimate fate of the non-human creation? We know that Jesus died and rose again to bring eternal life, at least to humans. But what about the rest of my Father's world? What about the rocks and trees and skies and seas? What about all creatures of our God and King? What about the speaking blackbirds that greet the breaking morning. Well, it would be fair to say that Christianity has sometimes spoken out of both sides of its mouth on matters about creation. Christian theology has always maintained a distinction between the creator and the creation, not wanting to blur the two. But creation is the product of God's will, called good multiple times in Genesis and spoken of with divine affection and care throughout the scriptures. In other words, a tree is not itself God, nor does God dwell within that tree. But trees exist because of God's will, are declared good by God, and are nourished by water and sunlight from God's open hand. As Christianity spread throughout the world, it encountered many religions that saw creation itself as divine or as the deity. And deceived as it was often by the colonial powers with which it was coupled, Christianity sometimes took a violent approach to these religions, just as colonists took a violent approach to native peoples. Such religions were considered idolatrous and the work of the devil. And in distancing Christianity from nativist religions, it made it easier over time to justify the destruction of land and its people in search of gold and power. Theologically, the biblical idea that humans should steward creation began to drift to the idea that creation exists solely for human consumption and use. The call to nurture creation shifted to a license to exploit it. Christian aversion to the idea, for instance, that a river is not itself a god made it easy to justify dumping toxic waste into a river without regard for what lay downstream. We do well to be humble and honest about mistakes that our faith has made in the past. To this day, the idea that creation lacks any inherent value apart from its utilization by humans is one of the many residues of colonialism that Christianity is struggling to shed. At a World Missions Conference I attended in Tanzania a number of years ago, I sat next to a pastor from Fiji, 
at a roundtable discussion about the effects of global warming on the global church. At one point, I mentioned the term climate change in my comments, and the pastor told me bluntly, while you Americans are still deciding if climate change is real or not, we in the Pacific are now talking about climate justice. My church is eight feet above sea level. We will soon be underwater and not of our own fault. We're not talking about matters of change here, but matters of justice. Now, pollution and climate change are not completely or even largely the fault of Christianity specifically. But the problem is that we have not always been as actively prophetic as we could have been in pursuing environmental justice. But there are signs of hope. Slowly but surely, Christians are confessing and repenting of our complicity with colonialism in all sorts of ways. Stewardship of the earth is emerging as something about which Christians are spending more time talking. And sustainability efforts offer hope that we can both take advantage of the earth's provision to meet human need without compromising the future of our planet. In our denomination's book of order, various responsibilities are prescribed to those who would become members of any of our churches. They include things like proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, participating in worship, seeking justice, and serving others, things that you might expect. Recently, another core responsibility of every church member was added, caring for God's creation. The abundance of summer camps, retreat centers, and wilderness ministries indicates that Christians are rediscovering that we can commune with the Creator best when we're away from the noise and chaos of cities and commerce. Our desire to worship outside this morning is itself a testament to the fact that we're recognizing the urgency of our need to improve our stewardship of God's planet. But as with most pendulums, there's always a danger of swinging too far from one side to the other and to overcorrect. Not all New Age Earth spirituality fits easily into a more open Christianity. The word natural, after all, today is so trendy that it hardly means anything, right? Walking barefoot in a forest and hugging a tree can clear one's head and lessen one's anxiety, decreasing cortisol, as we've learned. But it cannot convince us of the love and purpose that only God can provide. There are many today, it's common to hear, people who say that they have no need for a church community because they can simply go on a hike and commune with God that way. A couple years ago at a gift shop in Vail, Colorado, I saw a shirt that read, I'd rather be skiing and thinking about God than sitting in church thinking about skiing. Luckily, the shirt was on the clearance rack, but it does capture the zeitgeist of our day, right? The spirit of our times. So how do we stop this pendulum of creation theology from swinging wildly between opposite poles? How do we ground our thinking as Christians in a sturdy foundation that can inform our thinking about ethical decisions we make every day as people who consume and cultivate the fruits of the earth? Well, put your thinking caps on for a minute so we can discuss some theology. Christian faith has historically talked about two kinds of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. Revelation refers to knowledge about God, that which has been revealed to us about God. 
And so general revelation refers to knowledge of God that is generally available to everyone. Simply by looking at the world around us and being attentive to creation. We can see the fingerprints of God on everything that God has made, right? We can look at a sunset and say, wow, there must be a God. The other kind of revelation, special revelation, refers to knowledge of God that is available to us only through Scripture. To those who by the Spirit hear and believe God's Word. This revelation cannot be found on a hike somewhere, but only through prayerful reading and listening to the scriptural text. While general revelation is the ground of theism generally, special revelation is the ground of Christian faith specifically. Both general and special revelation teach us important truths about God, but only special revelation reveals the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One can look at a sunset and say, wow, there must be a God. But one must look at scripture to know who that God is in Jesus Christ. This is important because we don't just need to know that a God of some kind exists, as general revelation might show us. We need to know who that God is. We need to know that the God who is has redeemed us in Christ. Only special revelation can teach us that. And so, as with all good theology, we are led to Jesus Christ even for our thinking about creation. Because for Christians, of course, the God of general and special revelation is the same God. Maybe you noticed in our reading from Colossians this morning that the person of Christ is described in magisterial terms. He's described as the Savior savior and Redeemer, not just of human beings, but of all creation. The text says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. And it goes on to say that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. The repeated use of the phrase all things is biblical parlance for creation and indicates that In God's work of raising Christ from the dead, God ensured not just that humans can be whisked away out of creation to some other non-physical spiritual place while the earth goes down in flames. No, all of creation has been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Sin seems to be a uniquely human problem, but certainly all of creation bears the scars and burdens of that sin in all sorts of ways. So it follows that the forgiveness of sins frees not only humans themselves, but all of creation to thrive as God intended all along. Every year at Easter, the question of the nature of Jesus' resurrection confronts us anew. And as Jesus shows his disciples his hands and his side, the scars of the wounds he bore for us on the cross, we're reminded of the gospel writer's insistence that Jesus' resurrection is a physical resurrection. He was not raised as a disembodied soul, but as a body and a soul. And not as an unrecognizable body, not as some kind of, not as something different from what we would recognize as a body. He was raised as the one whose bodily scars reflect the redemption of this very life in the next. 
Now, it's true that thinking about Jesus' resurrection as a metaphor makes it easier to accept under the rules of today's logic. But a metaphorical resurrection is insufficient because humans are not just a soul. We are a body and a soul. And our bodies demonstrate our inseparable connection to the physical world of creation. From dust were ye made, and dust ye shall be, right? A dualistic separation of body and soul in our thinking about this life or the next life will always lead to a preference for the spiritual over the physical and therefore to a neglect of the physical created world and of all that inhabits space on the planet. But physical bodies don't just float around in the sky somewhere like disembodied souls. Heaven is described in the Bible as a city with no walls, a garden with trees, a dwelling place with many rooms, a feast of rich foods. That sounds a lot like a redeemed creation to me. And so you see a keen sense that the creation is not just a temporary holding place, but a permanent part of God's plan changes our thinking about it. A keen sense that all that God has created through Christ has also been redeemed in Christ should make us attentive to what's happening in the world. I mean, if God cared enough about this world not only to create it, but also to redeem it with us in Christ, then clearly we must also care about and love this same world as God does. This means, of course, that we should heed the warnings about climate change and climate justice. We should work to protect endangered species. We should worry about famine and disease in distant lands. We should be appalled by pollutants that threaten the well-being of the plant, animal, and human kingdoms. Now, I know it's easy to turn away at the enormity of the environmental challenges we face. But change, at least in the church, begins with a coherent theology that governs the ways that we act and consume and sustain God's creation as stewards of the earth. And as we've seen, creation theology is, in fact, Easter theology. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstborn of all creation. And since Christ was raised with a physical body, we should be forever convinced not to neglect the physical creation into which he was raised. The risen Christ, after all, breaks bread with Cleopas and Emmaus and eats fish with Peter on the seashore. The scope of God's redemption is the whole creation itself. In Christ, God is making all things new. So, do animals go to heaven? Maybe the wolf really will live with the lamb. Maybe there really will be water bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Maybe gentle Athena and joyful karma will join some chorus of all octopi singing praise to the God of all creation. Maybe. I guess someday we'll find out. Amen.